1: Unless a mother is in the natural birth community or birthing with a midwife, it is very common that she will hear that birth interventions such as epidurals and inductions will not have a negative effect on her labor her baby, or her baby's ability to breastfeed. With cesarean, induction, and epidural rates at an all-time high, what effects might these have on your ability to meet your breastfeeding goals and what can you do if these interventions are absolutely needed? Today, I would like to welcome Fleur Bickford to the show. Fleur, aka Nurtured Child, is an RN and an International Board Certified Lactation Consultant in Ottawa, Ontario, as well as an avid writer, speaker, and social media maven in the field of lactation. Today, we're discussing birth interventions and their effects on breastfeeding this is the boob group episode 40. Welcome to The Boob Group, broadcasting from the Birth Education Center of San Diego. I'm your host, Robin Kaplan. I'm also an international board-certified lactation consultant and owner of the San Diego Breastfeeding Center. At The Boob Group, we're your online support group for all things related to breastfeeding. Did you know that we have a boob group club? All Boob Group Club members will get access to all of our archived episodes, plus bonus interviews, transcripts, and special discounts and giveaways from our partners. Plus, you can interact with all of this great content through the web or through our free Boob Group app, available in the Apple and Amazon Marketplace. Today, I'm joined by two lovely panelists in this studio. Ladies, will you please introduce yourselves?
3: Hi, I'm Shanna. I'm a mom of two babies. (laughs)
1: How old are your kiddos?
3: Um, I have a 6-year-old and I have a 17-month-old.
1: Fantastic.
2: Hi, I'm Maritas. I have two kids, a 12-year-old and a 7-month-old. And um, I teach prenatal yoga and I stay home with little Aiden. Fantastic. Well, welcome to the show, ladies.
0: (coughs) Sounds familiar. (coughs) If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, It was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com.
1: Here's a question for one of our experts. Hi, Boob Group. My name is Danielle, and I'm from Manhattan. I am currently pregnant with
4: twins, and I'm due in a few months, and I'm having a tough time finding local and online resources for breastfeeding twins. Do you think that attending a regular prenatal breastfeeding class will prepare me adequately for breastfeeding my twins? Also, can you recommend ways that I can connect with other moms of twins in my community? Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hi there, it's Donna. Great question, Danielle. I absolutely think that a regular prenatal breastfeeding class can be helpful for a mom of twins, especially if these are your first babies. There are many factors that can make breastfeeding twins more complicated or different, but having an understanding of the basic mechanics can only help. It's a great idea to supplement a class like this with some twin-specific resources. I recommend Karen Gramata's book, Mothering Multiples, as well as her website, karengramata.com for pregnancy, breastfeeding, and parenting resources for parents of multiples. You might also find it useful to schedule a prenatal breastfeeding consultation with the local IBCLC who can address any specific questions you have and help you get prepared before the babies arrive and then keep our info on hand for support after the babies, after the babies arrive. It's also great to connect with other moms of multiples. You can join your local parents of multiples organization for online or in-person support and resources. Know that some twins clubs are more breastfeeding educated than others, so if you don't get the support you need there, don't hesitate to look elsewhere. In some areas, the local La Leche League or other mother-to-mother support groups have experience supporting moms with multiples and can be a great option for meeting other moms. There are also support groups offered at hospitals and in private breastfeeding centers. You can contact them to see if they have a group specific for moms with multiples or if they have links to resources in your area. There are also online forums for breastfeeding twins support on several of the online parenting communities, which can be another great way of connecting with and learning from other moms, and that you can do that from the comfort of your pajamas or at four in the morning. And of course, you can check out my my website, breastfeedingtwins.org, for links to these resources and more information and support. Good luck, and enjoy your beautiful new babies.
1: So today on the Boob Group, we're discussing birth interventions and their effects on breastfeeding. Our expert, Fleur Bickford, is an RN and a private practice International Board Certified Lactation Consultant in Ottawa, Ontario in Canada. You can find Fleur speaking around the globe about breastfeeding, writing blog articles for her website, Nurtured Child, and supporting moms through Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us, Fleur, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Robin. I'm really excited to be here. I want to start the show by saying that some birth interventions are absolutely critical to save a baby's or mother's life. We are not going to debate that topic at all today. We are also not going to place judgment on anyone who chooses to use birth interventions during their labor. Our goal for today's show is to discuss how birth interventions can affect breastfeeding and what to do to counteract these effects should you need to use a birth intervention. Um, And to start also, here's just some statistics in the United States. So 33% of births are by cesarean, 42% of first-time moms are induced, and 60% of of moms receive an epidural and obviously um, in certain areas of the country that's actually a lot higher and then of course some are a tad bit lower. Um, so Fleur, what is the cascade of interventions and why is it referred to as a cascade?
5: Well the cascade of interventions is when one seemingly small intervention leads to a whole series of other interventions. When you look at the word cascade, one, demi- one definition that you get is a small waterfall, typically one of several, that fall in stages down a steep rocky slope. And I thought that that was actually a pretty accurate visual of what can happen with birth interventions. Uh, as an example, consider the intervention of continuous electronic fetal monitoring. It may seem like a fairly benign thing for, for a mom to be hooked up to a monitor to uh you know, keep track of the baby's heart rate. Um, However, when we have a mom who's hooked up, usually she's in bed because if we have a mom who's wandering around, often the signal isn't picked up very well. And so mom's in bed. So now we have a mom who isn't moving around and so labor slows down. At this point, Pitocin is often added to speed things up. With Pitocin, we've got contractions are more intense. So, Even if a mom was planning on having a natural birth, we often end up with an epidural. So now we have the epidural meds in the mom's system, therefore also in babies. With Pitocin and epidurals, we've got an increased risk of C-section. So, uh, you know, we see just that one simple uh, intervention of putting a fetal monitor on can lead to a whole bunch of other interventions. And the cascade can continue even after the baby is actually born. Uh, With the C-section, for example, we also have separation of mom and baby after birth. The separation often results in a baby who's less stable than one who is skin-to-skin with the mom. The blood sugar may drop. Then we have formula being introduced to bring it back up. Or we have a baby who isn't nursing well because of the medications that were given during delivery. And again, we have a baby who's being supplemented. So, and this is a concern because we know from numerous studies that early supplementation with formula is associated with early weaning.
1: Is Pitocin generally thought of as the first trickle in the cascade?
5: It's not always the first one, but it's a big one for sure. Um, With Pitocin, a mom has to be on continuous fetal monitoring, so as we just discussed, the fetal monitoring by itself um, and the fact that we have a mom who isn't moving around can lead to a whole lot of other interventions. The other big thing that happens with Pitocin and the same is true for epidurals and uh, cesarean sections is we have a mom who's also getting a lot of IB fluid and we have new research that tells us that um, with all of the extra fluid that mom is getting, some of it is going to baby and this is something that, you know, we've Thought for a long time, but we now have the research to prove it. And this means that the baby's birth weight is artificially inflated after birth. And then when the baby starts to pee off all of the excess fluid, it can look like the baby has lost a lot more weight than they actually have. Then we get into moms being pressured to supplement with formula and the whole sort of downward spiral of things that can happen when we get to that point. the researcher, uh, Joy Noel-Weiss, who did the original research about the IV fluids and birth weight, concluded that babies should be weighed 24 hours after birth and that 24 hour weight should be used to calculate weight loss in the baby in order to give them time to get rid of any excess fluid.
1: Ladies, um, I'd like to open this up to you now. Um, so what was your labor like and can you tell us if you had any medical interventions during your labor? Shanna?
3: My first baby, um, my six-year-old now, I actually had HELP syndrome. So, can you explain what that is? It's just basically a a general kind of acronym that encompasses a bunch of um issues that you're having as a mom and the only way to stop those things from happening, um, your body breaking down, um, protein that comes out in your urine and all these different things is to deliver the baby. So there really wasn't any option in terms of induction and, you know, waiting to see if my body um, could have the baby naturally because my platelet count was dropping. They were worried that I would, you know, have some issues um, clotting and whatnot. So it was, you know, rushed to the, you know, the OR. And um, so I had my baby. At how many weeks? He was... 34 weeks in a couple of days. Okay. So, basically, 35-weeker. Um, and so, there was, like, you know, a flurry of things going on. I had my baby. He was healthy, you know, considering he was early. He was a good weight. His APCAR scores were good. Um, but they still whisked him right away to the NICU, and they finished up, you know, my, my C-section um, operation, and I remember being wheeled in a completely separate area. They took my baby to the NICU. Um, and I just remember sitting, you know, alone because my husband had gone with a baby. and a while had passed, and nurses had come in to check on me and you know, try and wiggle your toes and all these different things, but it kind of got to the point where I had to ask to see my baby. Um, And so at that point, they said, sure. They wheeled me into the NICU. And even then, my first experience wasn't a breastfeeding experience. It was, here's your baby, and I got to hold him. But they were even very cautious to let me do that because, um, you know, the medication that they had given me hadn't completely worn off. So um, I got to, you know, have some touches and some, you know, some time with my baby. But it wasn't even until later that night. I had my baby probably around 830 in the morning. Um, that emergency c-section and then it wasn't until probably in the evening until I saw a lactation consultant and she then told me you know um, you have a preemie and you've got some issues going on so you need to start pumping that was kind of the initial thought so she left me this hospital grade pump and she explained to me that you know I'd be pumping and I wouldn't be having anything really come out and I thought that was strange Um, but I went along with the process and that's what we did for a while. My son spent five days in the NICU, and I think it was probably the the third or fourth day before I actually even tried to get him um, to latch onto my breast, and there was no lactation consultant to help me do that, unfortunately. It was the nursing staff, and they really weren't supportive, and I had this teeny tiny baby, and it was that whole ram him onto the boob sort of scenario, which as a new mom, I was super not comfortable with, Um, so our breastfeeding experience just got started way on the wrong foot. Um, Did
1: did you find, where did you have, um, birth, or birth interventions with your second child?
3: With my second child, um, my doctor. I was down here in San Diego for that birth. I wasn't um, for my first birth, but my doctor had given me the option to either try and VBAC Mm -hmm. or do a repeat um, cesarean. And I decided because my first birth experience was kind of crazy to go with the repeat. Um, And that experience for me was completely different because I had my baby at Mary Birch, which is a really good kind of hospital for, I think, moms in our area. And so I was prepared. I got past 40 weeks so I was like 40 weeks and three days so my baby was full term completely healthy baby Um, she stayed with me in the OR my husband got to hold her in the OR with me for a while for the majority of my um, procedure and then really there was only a 10 minute period probably where she wasn't actually with me okay and then as soon as I got out of the OR there was no let's wait till you hold your baby they put her right to my breast um, and she started nursing right away, and we've had a really successful breastfeeding experience since then. So, two completely different Absolutely. sort of um, you know deliveries and breastfeeding
1: experiences. Very cool. Yeah. How about you, Maritas?
2: I actually have a very similar Do story you? <laughs> <laughs> um, to Shana. Um So, my first son uh, was born about forty-one weeks, and um, I'd gone into the hospital, and I was. In labor, My water didn't break, so they broke my water thinking, you know, they'll kind of encourage labor to continue. And um, I reached about 24 hours, and then I had a fever. And so they rushed me into the OR. And during that time, um, my son's heart rate dropped to 60, and it was just consistently at 60. And um, so they took him out, and I remember the doctor saying, you know, how— much distress he was in. He had pooped all over himself. So he had meconium all over. He um, popped blood vessels in his eye. Poor Aww. thing. And um, and then once they took him out, you know, they showed him to me. Here's your baby. And then they whisked him away. And I didn't see him for hours and hours and hours. Um, and I was just so, you know, medicated at that point that. I didn't really realize how long it's been Um, and by the time they had gotten me into the another room I still hadn't seen him he was in a nursery they gave him a bath you know all these things that um, was never kind of asked of me if they can do that to my baby by the time I got in my room and I finally saw him You know, they had given them to me to kind of just, here's your baby, and then off he went to a bassinet, which was close to my bed, but he was still, um, you know, we didn't nurse or anything like that for a while. And then a nurse came, and then we tried nursing, um, and he wasn't latching on. And so they had given me a pump as well. And I thought it was just the strangest thing. (laughs) Like, why, you know, why would I all all of a sudden have a pump? But um, I was just putting my trust, you know, in their hands, thinking, you know, they know better. And they've gone through this multiple times. And um, It's a shame they didn't tell you the rationale behind it. But Yeah, it was just kind of like, here, you know, pump milk because your baby can't latch on. And we, you know, a few days later, we went home. He still was kind of having problems latching on, so I was just engorged, you know, and was just so uncomfortable. And all they could tell me, you know, when I called was, you know, take a nice warm shower and kind of help that pressure instead of nursing your baby. Mm-hmm. And it ended up that I ended up drying out, and, um, you know, my first one was on formula, which was a bit disappointing. <laughs> You know, with my second one, we also had an emergency C-section. I tried to go V-back. Again, he was distressed. I guess my kids are pretty dramatic in birth. (laughs) 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 And so we went in the OR to come out. But he was with me, you know, next to me the whole time. When I went into the recovery room, he was next to me. They cleaned him up next to me. And um, when they were done cleaning him, they put him on me and... He just kind of pressed up like an upward facing <laughs> dog and yeah. you know latched on right away and we've had a you know really good nursing relationship and so I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with the second. It's nice you
1: were able to kind of redeem your your first <laughs> yes. times
2: around. For me, you know, my
1: I was I was so naive. Um, I went in and I was ready to have my baby that day because of just you know I was I felt like I was done being pregnant. So I I chose the elective induction, which turned into a very long route with pitocin, then then breaking my water, which turned into an epidural, and eventually my you know eighteen hour labor he pretty much was, I was told, you just have to push one more time and he'll come out. And after been pushing for about two and a half hours and I was like, okay. And my husband told me later, well, yeah, she snipped you. So I had an episiotomy on type of all that without being asked, which I guess I'm, I'm thankful in some ways because it ended up not being a cesarean, which pretty much that would have been. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but the recovery was about six weeks because of the extreme episiotomy that was done. And the second time around, Seven hour labor, I pushed three times. You know, it was just different, but definitely that long traumatic birth was not only traumatic for. Me, but also for my son as well, which kind of impacted our breastfeeding in the beginning for sure. So, Floor, you know, according to research, what, which breast interventions have the greatest risk for negatively impacting breastfeeding and why? Um, it's hard to say which
5: interventions come with the greatest risk for breastfeeding issues due to the fact that it tends to be quite individual and the progression of breastfeeding also depends on how things are managed after birth. Um, Research on birth interventions is also very difficult due to the fact that with the whole cascade of interventions that we've been talking about, um, it can be really difficult to tease out what specifically is responsible for any breastfeeding issues. What we do know, however, is that uh, medications given during labour have a definite impact on the baby. Recent research has found that Epidural medications during labor and delivery are associated with 0.5 percent greater weight loss by the newborn, uh, fewer babies suckling within the first four hours after birth, and increased rate of supplements in hospital, and uh, along with fewer babies being fully breastfed on discharge from hospital. So we certainly see um, effects from epidural medications that are used. Other studies have also shown um, impairment of early breast-seeking and sucking behaviors. And again, we get into a whole cascade of um, interventions after the birth as well when we have a baby who's not nursing well. Uh, We also have narcotic medications that are sometimes given during labor and delivery can impair respiratory function for the baby, which often means separation of mom and baby after the birth, and they can also interfere with coordination of sucking, swallowing, and breathing. Pitocin um, is associated with higher rates of jaundice. Uh, It's also causes very strong, frequent contractions, which can end up leading to fetal distress, um, which then leads to an emergency C-section a lot of the time. Those really strong contractions can lead to extra pressure on the fetal skull, which can impair functioning of the cranial nerves. And the other thing with Pitocin is it has an antidiuretic effect, which means that the mother ends up retaining Um, a lot of fluid after birth and that can lead to a lot of edema um, or swelling in mom's breasts postpartum. So we see it's not exactly engorgement with milk, but we have moms with these really swollen breasts and that can certainly slow down um, the milk coming in and it can also make it a lot harder for the babies to latch on and nurse well, which then leads to sore nipples and poor milk transfer, poor weight gain, and then of course we see this, you know, formula being introduced as well. Um, Other interventions such as C-section, vacuum, and forceps, those can all also have an impact on breastfeeding, and we'll discuss that a little bit later.
1: Do these interventions increase the risk for breastfeeding challenges short-term and long-term?
5: Yes, they certainly do. Um, Short-term, we definitely see an increase in breastfeeding difficulties, and, you know, we often have... Sleepy babies or babies that just are not not latching on well or they're not transferring milk very well. And it's these short-term issues that tend to lead to the longer-term issues. The first couple of weeks after birth are really a critical time for establishing milk production. So if we have a mom and a baby that are struggling in the first few weeks, um, milk production gets off to a rough start. We have a baby who hasn't been nursing very well and um, milk isn't being removed, then that can certainly have a long-term impact on milk production. And if things don't go well in that first couple of weeks, sometimes it's not possible to recover fully from that. and it may not be possible to ever bring in a full supply of milk with that baby. Um, so we definitely see you know, immediate um, challenges with you know, baby's not latching well, mom's getting sore, baby's not transferring a lot of milk, and then those short-term issues can certainly lead to longer-term issues.
1: Most of these interventions you're mentioning are ones that are taking place in the hospital. Are there ones that take place in a birth center or home birth setting as well?
5: Yeah, there certainly tend to be far fewer interventions in a birth center or home birth. Um, however, there are times where vacuum or forceps may be used Um you know, even, with, even in a birth center or a home delivery if the baby's needing some help. Um, sometimes even just gentle traction on the baby if the delivery is a little more difficult and, um, you know, doctor or midwife is having to help the baby out. Uh, all of those things can have an impact on breastfeeding um, simply because babies aren't really meant to be pulled out. They're meant to be pushed out.
1: And, Floor, how can an elective induction affect breastfeeding?
5: With an elective induction, usually the biggest impact is the fact that um, often we have an early baby. So inductions are usually scheduled sooner rather than later. Um, You know, sometimes they're scheduled because there's an issue with the baby. The baby needs to be delivered a little bit early. Sometimes there's fear that the baby is going to be too big. And of course, the ultrasound. Um, results can often be off. So we do frequently end up with a baby who is a little bit preterm. Um, and these late preterm babies, so they're not really premature, but they're not full term either. Those late preterm babies, as we call them, can have a lot of difficulties with breastfeeding. Their um, coordination of suck, swallow, breathe uh, tends to need a little more time to develop. They tend to be quite sleepy and they don't feed as well. So we see increased rates of jaundice with those babies and definitely an increased rate of um, breastfeeding difficulties which again leads to um, you know greater weight loss and things like formula having to be introduced. So those um, babies that are just a little bit early uh, which is really common when we have an elective induction, can definitely cause some issues for breastfeeding.
1: And is there a difference, in effect, in a mother who has a scheduled cesarean compared to an emergency cesarean and has already started labor naturally on her own? Since it seems like that's kind of one of the, one of the stories that's being told in um, with our panelists.
5: Uh, there's definitely a difference between the two. Um, as to which one might have more of an impact on breastfeeding, it's really hard to say. The biggest issue with a scheduled C-section is often that they're scheduled, again, earlier rather than later, the same as with an elective induction, and then we run into all the issues associated with a late preterm baby. Uh, There may also be a difference due to the fact that with a scheduled C-section, the mother is not experiencing all of the hormonal changes associated with labor, and the baby is not being exposed to the usual forces of the birthing process, and we don't really know yet what impact that might be having on mom and baby. We suspect that it does have some impact. Um, we really just don't have a lot of research yet to know exactly what impact it does have um, on both mom and baby and then on turn, um, in turn on breastfeeding. So with uh, an emergency C-section, one big issue with that tends to be the emotional impact of it. So. If we have an emergency C-section, although we have the, um, you know, the mom has usually gone into labor on her own, so we have the uh, hormonal response of having gone into labor. The baby's been exposed to the um, natural forces during the birthing process for the most part. But with... The emergency c-section we have usually a really strong um, emotional reaction and the emotional side of things doesn't get talked about a lot but i think it's a very important aspect um, women spend nine months planning for birth and picturing how things are going to be so when things don't go as planned it can really be quite traumatic women who have experienced a difficult birth are certainly at an increased risk of depression and that in turn can have an impact on breastfeeding If birth doesn't go as planned, it's really important for mothers to give themselves time and permission to grieve the loss of their birth as they pictured it. It really is a grieving process that has to happen. Um, And unfortunately, a woman's feelings about her birth are often unintentionally dismissed by people around her. Uh, You know, people will often tell a woman, you should just be happy, you've got a healthy baby. And of course, we're really. Thrilled that we have a healthy baby, but at the same time, uh, mom's feelings really matter as well. And I often tell moms it's okay to love your baby but hate the way they came into the world. Um, You know, it's really important to acknowledge those feelings and working through those feelings is important how women work through them is going to be very individual some women find that talking about it or writing out their birth story is enough and some women may need to consider counseling to help them work through things
1: okay when we come back Floor will discuss how the routine use of vacuum can affect breastfeeding as well as what to do to counteract these effects if you end up needing birth interventions we'll be right back Okay, so we're back, and we are speaking with Fleur Bickford, um, who is a private practice lactation consultant in Ottawa, Ontario, and also the owner of the website um, Nurtured Child. So Fleur, when a woman is faced with the decision to use vacuum extraction or have a cesarean birth, most women would choose the vaginal birth over surgery. Um, is If the vacuum is necessary to remove the little one, what effects could this have on breastfeeding, and what should she be looking for after the birth?
5: Well, any intervention where the baby is pulled out rather than mom pushing the baby out can certainly have an impact on breastfeeding. So vacuum, um, but also forceps or C-section. Vacuum is definitely a big one, though, when it comes to breastfeeding. Um, To start with, with any of these interventions, the baby may be sore after birth. You can imagine what it would be like if uh, somebody stuck a giant vacuum on your head and used it to pull you out of a tight space. Um, The baby's head is going to be sore. Uh, The other big issue is forceps and vacuum extraction can cause bruising and swelling of the head and face. And due to the pressure that's being exerted with them, they can cause some distortion of the cranial bones. We often see significant molding of the baby's head with a vacuum and although a baby's cranial bones are designed to move over one another as the baby descends through the birth canal, the forces exerted by vacuum or forceps can often cause shifts in the cranial bones that are not easily self-corrected by the baby after birth. And because everything is connected underneath the cranial bones, we've got membranes and then the nerves, and it's all connected. So um, if the cranial bones are being shifted out of place due to the vacuum or forceps, then all of these things can cause irritation to the baby's cranial nerves. And it's those nerves that control everything through the mouth and the jaw. So that can lead to alterations in sucking patterns and as a result we can end up with pain for mom and also ineffective milk transfer so then we've got a baby that's not getting enough to eat and we're seeing weight loss. Um, babies really are meant to be you know pushed out by mom's um, uterine contractions so when a baby is um, delivered by C-section, forceps, or vacuum, or even if we have a well-meaning doctor who's trying to speed up the vaginal delivery by pulling on the baby, it can cause some structural issues as well um, within the baby's spinal cord that can affect sucking. And sometimes we can see um, a really strong preference for nursing on one side over the other. Mom may have pain on one side but not the other. Um, occasionally, I've seen babies that have a complete inability to latch on one side, but they'll do okay on the other side. And a lot of these structural issues will work themselves out eventually. Um, they either work themselves out, the baby's able to gradually self-correct these issues, or the baby learns to compensate um, for the restrictions and is eventually able to nurse effectively. Um, this is why we see a lot of moms who, you know, they're struggling in the beginning, they've got weeks of pain and then eventually it goes away. But in the meantime, we've got mothers that are really struggling and they're having a lot of um, unnecessary pain and often a very frustrating breastfeeding relationship. So um, one thing that uh, can certainly be done to help in that situation is uh, making use of complementary therapies such as chiropractic care, cranial sacrotherapy, osteopathy, All of those things can make a big difference for breastfeeding. Um, It really helps to address some of the structural issues that can be caused by things like uh, vacuum and forceps and C-section and can help the moms to... you know, develop a, a smoother breastfeeding relationship a lot faster, so.
1: And Fleur, what would you say, how significant is skin-to-skin after birth in the days forward to counteract the effects of birth interventions? It sounds like our panelists with the second babies had their children with them immediately where, um, with their first ones that didn't. Um, I would say that it's very important. Uh, being skin-to-skin with mom
5: is where baby is most stable. And any separation from mom uh, tends to disrupt the baby's sucking response. It increases stress hormones in the baby. So, you know, especially when we've had any kind of intervention in the birth, skin-to-skin with mom is where we want the baby to be um, because it helps with the recovery process after the delivery. Um, we also know that babies that are separated from mom are colder. So even if they are on a warmer separated Babies tend to have a body temperature of one degree Celsius lower than babies that are kept skin-to-skin with mom. And babies are skin-to-skin, also have more stable heart rate, uh, blood sugar, respiratory patterns, oxygen levels, all that is more stable when a baby is skin-to-skin with the mom. Um, we also have the skin-to-skin contact also allows the baby to be colonized with mom's bacteria instead of the hospital bacteria, and that's important since mom has antibodies in her milk to her own bacteria, not necessarily the hospital bacteria. And it's, you know, when we have any kind of separation of mom and baby, that has an impact on the mom as well. So by keeping baby skin to skin, we're promoting bonding, we're um, increasing milk production, it prevents or uh, decreases feelings of tiredness in the mom because of all of the wonderful hormones that are released. So it really does help both mom and baby to recover faster from pregnancy um, and labor and delivery. And we also have some studies that have shown that babies that are kept skin to skin in the hours after birth are more likely to latch on and breastfeed and are more likely to breastfeed well. So it's Skin-to-skin contact is important for all babies, but especially if we've had interventions during delivery, it's the best place for mom and baby to recover.
1: And ladies, it sounded, again, that you had your babies not skin-to-skin the first time around because they were whisked away to the NICU. And then second time around, you had skin-to-skin after birth and... How do you think that was this significant in establishing your breastfeeding relationship with your second-born children, and maybe counteracting the fact that you had to have a you know another cesarean? Um, both of you actually had a second cesarean, so. Um, how did you think that helped? I think
3: definitely there was a huge difference from the first to the second. Um, I My breastfeeding experience with my first, like Marita's kind of got cut short. Um, I did end up pumping exclusively. And, you know, so my body, I think in the second time was familiar with the process. Sure. But it never really got that opportunity to, you know, skyrocket, you know, when, in the first birth, and the first breastfeeding experience. So with the second baby, I think just having that initial connection where she was skin to skin and she had that sort of, not necessarily immediate, but very soon after birth um, you know, she was able to latch on and start that that whole process. I think my body was like, oh we know what to do with this, <laughs> and and so I think that kind of definitely established you know, our success you know, um, in breastfeeding, and, and we're still breastfeeding, so um, you know, completely light worlds you know, different, definitely a better experience. That's yeah.
2: great. How about you, Marita? Yeah, and I agree, it's the same thing, when I had um, Aiden on me, skin to skin, shortly after the C section. It was like he knew what to do, you know. And you know, I remember laying there and thinking, oh, "Okay, this is this is how it's supposed to work. This is you know." This is what I learned in my
1: breastfeeding class. <laughs> you know, this is like, yeah,
2: It's like this is this is natural. It doesn't, you know. It it felt like I just surrendered to um, that time and um, allowed him to do what you know he's meant to do, which is, you know, nurse and, um, and I got to smell that really yummy newborn <laughs> smell, yeah. which was, you know, great. It's intoxicating. It is. <laughs> they should bottle that up. And I smell. know. <laughs> <was so> <laughs>
1: That's fantastic. Flora, for a mom who ends up using it birth interventions, whether by her choice or when it's a necessity, um, are there things that she can do after the baby is born to decrease her risk for breastfeeding challenges? Um, like, what would, would you recommend being the most critical during those first few hours and days in the hospital? And what about long term?
5: So if a mother has interventions um, during the birth, uh, the best, you know, we've already talked a little bit about the skin-to-skin contact, and that is certainly um, the best place to start in terms of reducing the risk for breastfeeding challenges when there have been interventions. So keeping baby skin-to-skin, and by that, I don't mean just a few minutes here and there. We want baby in a diaper only, mom ideally with nothing on from the waist up, and baby staying there um, as long as possible. So we're not talking, you know, skin to skin for half an hour after birth and then that's it. We want baby skin to skin with mom as much as possible because that's where baby is most stable. Um, And also by keeping baby close, baby has easy access to the breast and the mom is better able to pick up on any early feeding cues. Um, Now, if we have a baby who's not latching or not nursing very well, which is quite common when there have been interventions in um, in the delivery. Then one of the things that is really really important is to start frequent hand expression and spoon feeding in the first couple of days. It really is the best way to prevent some of the um, issues that we can run into with things like weight loss and um, you know formula supplementation in hospital. Um, Pumping in the first few days after birth usually is not very effective uh, simply because the volumes of colostrum are small. And so if you're pumping, the colostrum tends to just get lost in the pump parts. Um, hand expression is a really important skill. It's something that moms can practice um, even during pregnancy, providing we don't have a mom who's at risk for preterm labor. Uh, hand expression can be practiced even before the baby arrives and uh, so if we have a baby who's not nursing, then hand-expressing that colostrum can just be hand-expressed straight into a spoon and then spoon-fed to the baby. And by doing those two things, keeping baby skin-to-skin, hand-expressing and spoon-feeding, then we end up... Um, baby is being kept stable, babies getting what they need so that they're not losing weight and we're protecting mom's milk supply. And if we can protect mom's milk production... So that we've got milk comes in you know on time we're not dealing with delayed milk production that really makes things easier down the road if we have a baby who's not nursing all that well and then we throw you know delayed milk production or low milk production in on top of that it makes things that much harder to deal with so those two simple things skin to skin hand express and spoon feed And then as the milk starts to increase in volume, if we still have a baby who's struggling to nurse, then at that point, pumping can be introduced. But those first um, three days or so until the milk starts to come in, hand expression really is much more effective. Um, The other thing that I certainly recommend is getting help sooner rather than later from an international board certified lactation consultant if we're dealing with a baby that is not nursing very well. Um, So seeing somebody in hospital but also, once you get home, if, you know, having trouble at home, a lot of moms um, are discharged even before their milk comes in. And then the milk comes in and sometimes, you know, there are issues with engorgement or whatever the issue may be. But a lot of mums have a tendency to wait and see or they'll tough it out or, you know, there's this sort of mentality of um, breastfeeding is natural and I should be able to do this and I shouldn't need help. But um, it, it really is a learned skill and it's better to get help sooner rather than later because the sooner breastfeeding problems are addressed, the better chance we have of um, being able to resolve them. So um, getting help right away if you're having problems can really um, cut down on long-term breastfeeding issues.
1: Well, ladies, thank you so much for your insight. And Floor, thank you so much for your insight into birth interventions and their effect on breastfeeding. And for our Boob Group Club members, our conversation will continue after the end of this show as Floor will share, is a mom destined to having breastfeeding challenges if she has birth interventions and how to minimize common interventions during birth? So for more information about our Boob Group Club, please visit our website at theboobgroup.com. Here's Lara Odello sharing ways to overcome societal booby traps.
6: Hi, group listeners. I'm Lara Odello, a certified lactation educator, the retail marketing manager at Best for Babes, and owner of Lama Care Designs. Today, we're here to talk about how you can achieve your personal breastfeeding goals without being undermined by cultural and institutional booby traps. Let's talk about a checklist that you can use to avoid booby traps in the hospital. This list is especially helpful for mothers who will be giving birth in a facility that has not yet earned the Baby Friendly Hospital designation. Those hospitals are required to follow this protocol as standard practice. But to avoid the baby traps, make it clear that you want to hold your baby skin to skin immediately after birth, whether you give birth vaginally or by cesarean section. Make it clear that you want to delay the umbilical cord clamping until after it stops pulsating. Let the hospital know that you want to initiate breastfeeding in the first hour, that you don't want to have your baby suctioned unless it's medically necessary, and that you'd like to delay all newborn procedures until after the first feeding. Make it known that you want to room in with your baby and not have your baby taken to the nursery unless medically necessary. Let the staff know that you do not want your baby supplemented with formula unless medically necessary, and any supplementation must be approved by you or your partner. Delay your baby's bath in favor of breastfeeding and skin sand time during at least the first day. Let the staff know that you don't want your baby to be given a pacifier or bottle when you're separated or not. Get expert help with latch and positioning from staff that has current and regularly updated training in breastfeeding in order to minimize inconsistent advice, specifically that you want to have access to an IBCLC. Limit staff and visitors to a number that allows you to focus on your baby, getting breastfeeding off to a good start. You can even bring a sign to hang on your door. Also, let the hospital know that you don't want to be given a formula bag when you leave the hospital. And don't leave without getting referrals for breastfeeding support resources in your community. If this seems like a lot for mothers to do. Consider asking your local breastfeeding support groups, breastfeeding coalitions, and mom groups to help ask your hospital to begin the process of becoming a baby-friendly designated hospital. You and your baby deserve to have proper breastfeeding protocol be the standard of care. A special thank you to Tanya Lieberman and IBCLC for writing the Booby Trap series for Best for Babes. Visit bestforbabes.org for more great information about how to meet your personal breastfeeding goals and my business, mamapairdesigns.com for breastfeeding supportive wearables. And be sure to listen to the Boob Group for fantastic conversations about breastfeeding and breastfeeding support.
1: Thank you so much to our expert panelists and all of our listeners. If you have any questions about today's show or the topics we discussed, please call our Boob Group voicemail hotline at 619-866-4775 and we'll answer your question on an upcoming episode. If you have a breastfeeding topic you'd like to suggest, we'd love to hear it. Simply visit our website at theboobgroup.com and send us an email through the contact link. Coming up next week, we'll be chatting with Andrea Blanco about the joys and challenges of breastfeeding a toddler. Thanks for listening to The Boob Group, your judgment-free breastfeeding resource.
2: This has been a New Mommy Media production. The information and material contained in this episode are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. While such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care, and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider.
0: Hey, mamas.